0: Welcome to Amato's fifth quarter podcast. Listen to incredible conversations with former high profile AFL, A-League and NBL players who discuss their lives and respective professional sporting careers. Previous guests welcomed on the podcast include.
1: Travis
0: Stall, everybody. Body, Arsenal, Brett Mann. Dale Kicker, Eugene
2: Green, Kevin Brooks, Jack Fitzpatrick, Dale McDonald, Dan Jacobs, Calvert, Marcus Burris, Sean Redditch, Jamie McIntosh, Andrew Varhoff, Graham Korn, Brian Kerr, Jason Echomenas, Chris McDermott, Mike Ellis, Kevin Leach, Matt Smith, Michael Gilch, Brendan Tee, Jordan
1: McMahon, Fetford, Matt Shanahan, Rupert Stathwell, Dusty Rocco, Ann Gibson, Ricky O'Loughlin, Dylan Addison, Daniel Dorjevsky. Dom Tyson Sergio Fenday Adam Snyder Ricky Grip Rick Latson, Rod Jamison Toby Thurston Scott Lee Andrew Jarman Evan (laughs) Christopoulos Simon Beasley
0: Links to all previous episodes are down below for your listening pleasure. But without further ado, let's get into this next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter.
3: They've got a brand new stadium, a big one, and they're going to put a big flag up there in a moment because the Eagle has landed for the Premiers in 2018. There it is. Brisbane have won it. The Orange Order is restored. It took just one season of transition for Brisbane Raw. Premiers, now title winners, champions of Australia. The 17-year drought is over. All hail the kings, Sydney, the NBL 22 champions. 3 0 sweep. They win it. 97 28
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast, Episode 46. This is your host, Daniel, and thank you all very much for tuning into the show. All is very good, very blessed, very grateful from this end. And as always, hoping all is well for you listening from your end, and hopefully you all continue to enjoy listening to the content. I'd firstly like to give a big shout out to the partners of the podcast for their ongoing support, Cappuccinos and Pete and Pedro most appreciated, and you will learn a little more about them and the services they provide a little later on. But moving on from that, installment number 46, we have the pleasure of being joined by a former Footscray all-time leading goal kicker and AFL centurion, Simon Beasley. A very interesting and intelligent man with a very different story, particularly for his time. So he grew up in Perth, Originally played for Swan District before getting his opportunity in the then VFL with Footscray, who are now, of course, known as the Western Bulldogs. Now, he is one of the very rare players across the 1980s who studied while playing football and did attend university. He has worked as a bookmaker and also a stockbroker throughout his career, so very, very distinguished and successful career off the field. And then on the field was very successful as well. One of the biggest stars in the game throughout the 80s. Major goal kicker throughout that decade. He kicked more goals from 1980 to 1989 than anyone else. And yes, that includes the names of Tony Lockett, Jason Dunstall and Gary Ablett Sr. He kicked more goals through the 80s than all of them. While he had a lot of individual success though, he didn't get a lot of overall team success. He only played in three finals over the journey. And all of those finals came in that famous 1985 season where he kicked the ton, 105 goals for the year. Now one of just 28 players who have kicked over 100 goals in a season. As the Bulldogs made the preliminary final under now legendary coach Mick Mulhouse. We we discussed that season and also discussed a few funny moments like kicking the winning goal thanks to the Graham Allen famous or infamous missed kick across the face as well as missing a goal after the siren against the Brisbane Bears with fans invading the ground. That was a pretty funny story. But overall, through his career, he played 154 games for the Bulldogs, amassing 525 goals. He was the Cohen medalist in 1985. He's the club's leading goal kicker on seven occasions. And he's now in the Footscray Hall of Fame, as well as being their all-time leading goal kicker and the club's only centurion. So we'll get it underway now, Amato's 5th Quarter Podcast, episode 46, in conversation with Simon Beasley.
3: Goes across the face, Beasley chips in!
4: Kick or oh, beautiful-looking drop. Hunt, is it there? Yes, it is. Simon Beasley, four goals. Puts
0: it high, up to a forward. Beasley, direct mark Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast, Episode 46, in conversation with Simon Beasley. Simon, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show tonight.
1: Daniel, very nice
0: to talk to you, mate. Simon, you played your last game in 1989, 67 years of age now. understand you've spent some time as a stockbroker and then a bookmaker. Where are you at in life now, and how do you reflect on your career 30-plus years post-football?
1: At the moment, I'm still in the wagering industry, the racing industry. We've got websites. I've got one website called Bet Royale. So we're similar to the big corporate bookmakers. We're only a little minnow these days. We're nice and small, which is good. Follow the races on a pretty regular basis, and we've been on sport and all sorts of things. She said I was a stockbroker from about 1975 until about 2005. So I've had 25, 30 years in stockbroking with two or three different firms. The main one was Credit Suisse here in Melbourne, and I worked for a company called Audenet. I had an interesting career, but certainly my days are taken up with the racing industry business.
0: Well, firstly, congratulations on everything that you've achieved. Very successful career. You studied at the University of WA. Back in your day, not a lot of people went to university. It certainly wasn't the norm in terms of footballers. And and you seem quite strong in your belief of education, particularly in young people. How important is it for aspiring athletes, especially in this day and age, to always have a plan B because you're only ever one injury away from your sporting career being over?
1: Well look, in the 70s, so I went to Guildford Grammar School in Perth and I left school in 1973 and there are two institutions you want to go to either University of Western Australia or the WAIT, Western Australian Institute of Technology, to study and so fortunately I got reasonable marks in the leaving certificate at Guildford Grammar and then I found my way into the Western Australian University, WA Uni down in Crawley and studied a commerce degree but I think more so now it's paramount that sportsmen and the like, I mean, I know they get very involved with their sport. They certainly should do a degree in whatever area of interest they have. There's so many different facets, roads that they can go down. I was lucky in the 70s that university education was actually free and the government financed all the education. And um, Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, and so we didn't have to pay anything for the education, just sort of very, very basic guild fees and that sort of thing so I don't know how long ago that they started charging the students I think it's the 20 of maybe 25 years ago because it was obviously a huge impost on the government but I was very very fortunate that I was able to get a free university education and then I I moved over into the stock rating business and that was about the 1977-76-77 era so yeah but I think it's very very important now that now, you know, given your sporting career is relatively short, so I played senior football in Western Australia for four odd years with Swan Districts, and then I had about eight years with the Bulldogs, so over here, so in hindsight, when you look back on it, it was a very short period.
0: So when you were playing football, were there any other players who were at university or had gone to university?
1: When I was playing at Swan Districts. I played with a guy called Donny Langsford, and Donny was a pharmacist, and I think he was studying that at uh, the Western Australian Institute of Technology, or the UWA. Alan Kransberg, I think he was certainly a student. I played with him at Swan Districts, and he went on He went on to have a successful career with Alcoa, and he was chairman of the Eagles for a number of years there. Uh, Dalton Gooding, a bloke I went to school with, he played at Claremont. He studied accounting, and I think that was his professional career path. A lot of guys I went to school with at Schoolford Grammar School were, came from a farming background, and as a result, they went back to their the family properties when they finished their schooling. So, but now it's, there's so many kids they can work the You can do your, your courses on the internet, gives an opportunity to do something outside of football because you know, football is pretty full on these days, so, so much more than when I went through the 1980s because it's all-encompassing, full-time. You know, I, I had a job there. Well, When I played football for the Swan District in Perth for the four years I was there and for the eight years over here, I had a job from, from sort of 7 a.m. to about 5 p.m. and then I used to go out to the Western Oval over here and back in the Oval in Perth. It was very interesting.
0: Yeah, because obviously back then, it, being a, an athlete wasn't a full-time job.
1: No, that's quite correct. You had your, your sporting career, and mine, of course, being footy, but your major your emphasis was on your work career, so... And most of the guys I played with at the Bulldogs, a lot of them had, had blue collar careers and you know, I was a bit different being from the stock exchange. So, you know, that was a bit of a shock to the Bulldogs when I arrived there. <laughs> but look, it was all good. It all went very, very well and formed a lot of strong relationships over the years through sport and business.
0: Yeah, beautiful. As we mentioned, you're originally from Western Australia. Whereabouts did you grow up? And can you give some insights into sort of upbringing in terms of family life and, and also when you started playing football?
1: Yeah, so I, I was, we lived in, in the suburb of Guildford, so just up the Swan River, out of Perth, seven or eight miles out of Perth. And uh, I went to school at Guildford State School and then went to Guildford Grammar School aged 10. I had a brother a couple of years younger than me and a sister who was about five or six years younger than me. So we we had a beautiful upbringing in terms of where we lived and Guildford was just a great suburb, very, very quiet. But it was just fantastic over the, over the bridge from Bassanine over where Swan Districts are based. And, you know, I have fond memories of my childhood growing up in Perth. It's, a, you know, it's, a, it's such an idyllic city to, to bring kids up in Perth. But it's interesting now, but when I when I go back to see my mother, who's in her 90s, I speak to a lot of my mates and their kids and everything, all the kids, they all want to come to Melbourne for some reason. I don't know what it is, the opportunities and the like, but it's a very much a culturally strong city, Melbourne. It, it is an incredible city, even though we've got a few problems at the moment. But Certainly, though, I was sort of blessed to be brought up in Perth. I had great mates at school and great mates at uni, so it was a very, very good situation.
0: And you made your mark in terms of your football at Swan Districts in Perth. You won two leading goal kicker awards for the club, a Bernie Naylor medal, which is equivalent to the AFL's Coleman medal, and you also played in a grand final for the club. Can you take us back to the early days in terms of how the process was to actually get yourself onto a WAFL list?
1: Well, for the Waffle, in those days, it depended on where you lived. Because i have lived in Guildford, virtually next to Bastille Noble, just over the other side of the river, I, I was zoned to Swan Districts. But I, I spoke to Malcolm Brown, who was coaching Claremont. And he was sort of keen for me to come down, come down that way. But because we were living in Guildford, and I just finished my university after having lived down at Crawley, because I was zoned to Swan Districts. It was logical for me to play with them. So I found my way to Bassanine Oval, and Mum actually sold our family home in Market Street, Yorke. And she actually lived. She moved down to Claremont. That was that was the irony of that situation. But I could have easily ended up at Claremont Football Club. I was pleased I ended up at Swan Districts.
0: And through your career, you gained a reputation as a lethal goal kicker. You have a very quick lead. You were very regimented and accurate in your set shot, so your technique was always steady, measured, and you always held the ball straight down to the boot, and it was always right on the point that you kicked it. Does this come, or did this come down to just hours of repetition and practice?
1: I think it was because my brother and I used in Guildford. We had a big tennis court next to a tennis court next to the house, and all in the winter months, we just kicked the football nonstop. And like all young kids, even though in this day and age. It's a bit different in the um, in the internet side of things, because kids like to get onto the the different devices they have. But no, our, our, our winters were spent on the tennis court, kicking the football from end to end. And I think as a result of that, I managed to get a very skillful sort of kicking style in terms of the way I kicked for goals, and it sort of helped me in latter years when I progressed on to senior football.
0: The waffle has a rich history, and certainly back in your days, it was a very revered competition sort of like the SAFL, doesn't really have the same prestige as it once did. Can you give the listeners some insights into what the competition in WA was actually like back in your day?
1: The competition was very strong. So there were eight teams in Australia. Football was played on a state-by-state basis. The Waffle here in the Sandful in South Australia and the VFL in Victoria and the Tassie competition. So the Waffle was extremely strong. We had the eight teams and we played each other three times during the season. There 21 games to the season and Western Australia produced a never-ending list of very, very, very good footballers. And the history of Western Australian football is, was incredibly strong. As a kid growing up in Perth, I used to know players and all the other teams and particularly Swan districts because we had some great players. I went to each of the three grand finals in the early 60s. We won the flag 61, 62 and 63. Under Hayden and Bunton Jr. and all my heroes like Billy Walker and Trevor Nesbitt, Keith Slater and Robert McVie. We, we, we had great names at Swan Districts and winning three premierships straight like they did. And then they repeated under John Todd in the early 80s. Unfortunately, I'd come to Melbourne at the end of 1981. So I missed out on the three premierships that they had in 82, 83 and 84. But certainly football at a waffle level was very, very strong. We had some great coaches. Great players, I often think of Stephen Michael who played at South Fremantle under Mel Brown's tutelage and he was one player who didn't venture east. I think that's sort of the dream of all players who played in the Waffle in Perth was to maybe get an opportunity to play in the VFL in Melbourne because what used to happen, we played our games, all the games are played on a Saturday afternoon and on a Sunday night we had a show called The Winners. The Winners was a tape made of the Victorian Football League games On the Saturday afternoon, and they'd fly the tapes over to Perth on a Sunday morning on the planes coming over. And of course, the winners were shown at six o'clock. I think it was the highest rating program. It was on ABC TV, highest rating program each week in Perth. Everyone waited for six o'clock to watch the Victorian Football League games, and it's just fantastic. So, yeah, wow. Yeah, look, I mean, I was so lucky to get an opportunity to come over and play with the Bulldogs, so it panned out well for me.
0: Unfortunately, you didn't get the opportunity to play in a grand final for the Bulldogs, but you did play in a Waffle grand final, 1980 against South Fremantle. Yep. Kicked a couple of goals, but unfortunately went down to South Fremantle. Do you remember much of the game?
2: Just about ready to start the game here this afternoon. 1980 grand final. Magnificent spectacle here. Incredibly large crowd to watch this game. I think that's of 40,000. By about 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, I wouldn't have been surprised had the gates been closed. There's a magnificent shot from our helicopter overhead. You can see the crowd, just the enormity of the crowd. Umpire Phillips and Morris, John Morris, to bounce to start the 1980 grand final. Boucher opposed to Stephen Michael for the first bounce. There they go, Boucher with a tap. Rioli going to get the first kick of the game. Look at him thread his way through. There's a shot from our helicopter, magnificent shot. There you can see the crowd on the ground. Now they can go on the ground. Because let me tell you that South Fremantle have won the 1980 grand final. 23 goals, 18-156. The Swan District's 14 goals, 8-92. And there's from our helicopter, you can see the hundreds and hundreds, thousands in fact, of delighted
1: fans streaming onto the ground to welcome their heroes. Yeah, so South Fremantle are a very, very good side in 1980. So they had great players on all lines. Had a lot of indigenous players, great players. Basil Campbell played, Stephen Michael played, Benny Vagona played. These are guys I all played state football with under Mal Brown's coaching. Joe Mackay. They had some really, really good players after the round. they were always a challenge for us in the year 1980. But they sort of handled us pretty strongly in the grand final. It was look, we were competitive for the first half, but they took, they went away with the game after half time. It was a pretty strong loss, but. In 81, we came third, and then I left the clubs after that and came east. They went premiers for three years in a row. So, you know, they did incredibly well on history. Under John Todd's coaching, he was a genius of a coach, John Todd. We all knew about his reputation as a player, and he he retired very early in the piece, John Todd, but he was a great bloke. He's an ornament to football in Western Australia.
0: And this is the time when you you went to the Bulldogs. So, of course, as you mentioned, the, the VFL back then was probably a lot more lucrative than any other state. What was the, the reason you left Perth for Melbourne? Was it purely for football?
1: Well, look, there's a big downturn in the stock exchange in the early 80s. and I was working for a company called Hartley Point in Perth, and I spoke to the principals of the company, and they suggested, look, if there was an opportunity for me to come over to Melbourne, they would give me the opportunity to do that. And also, you know, because of Footscray wanted me to come over, so Footscray, I, I sort of... Came to an arrangement with them in sort of early 81 they were sort of talking to me and so i came to melbourne i had a job lined up i had a place to go and live lined up and everything sort of fell into place that was in a nutshell how it panned out for me so i was fortunate that i could sort of continue what I, what i was doing in perth you know a la having a good solid job and then playing football with one of the teams in the vfl so that was sort of a dream come true for me
0: Yeah, and did you get approached by any other VFL clubs, or was it was it always Footscray?
1: No, no, I got got approached by about five or six of them. I reckon. I think in memory, I spoke to Carlton. They came. A representative from Carlton came over to Perth. I spoke to St Kilda. I spoke to Geelong. When I came over here, I used to come over to the Melbourne Cup each year with a mate of mine who we went to university together. He's in the legal business, Tom Percy, and I spoke. To, I, I spoke to Essen and I spoke, look, I spoke to about five or six clubs. I think there were 12 teams in the BFL in the 80s at that stage and I spoke to maybe five or six of them. So, anyway, it was good. I liked the Bulldogs. I liked, you know, what they were about. They were working man clubs out in the western suburbs and I thought that was as good as an opportunity maybe I should have gone to Carlton because Carlton ended up winning the Premiership. I think they won in, in 81 and 82, 82 yeah. and then they won again in 87. So I might have been part of a Premiership club. But look, I don't, I don't have any regrets having gone to the Bulldogs. You know, we had some great moments, individual moments. We got through a preliminary final, as you say, in 1985. Brad Hardy won the Brownlow medal that year. We had our moment. It's a great experience at the Bulldogs, and I made a lot of friends and, A lot of old buddies from Western Australia, funnily enough, come over to play football over in Melbourne with me, and that was great.
0: All right, everyone, it's time for a quick break on A5Q. I want to talk about Cappuccinos, the perfect mobile cafe for your event catering needs. Established in 2019 in Adelaide, South Australia, Cappuccino's is our family business, here to provide you with freshly brewed, hot barista-made beverages on wheels, using locally roasted La Crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs. Cappuccino's caters for weddings and engagements, sporting events, school, university and work functions, and birthday parties, just to name a few. We pride ourselves not only on delivering warm, smooth and delicious coffee at a great price, but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile. If our customers walk away satisfied, it means our job has been done correctly. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, contact us directly via phone at 0418 894 570 or email at cappuccinos at hotmail.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and help spread the word. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get back to the show. When you signed for the Bulldogs, you were, I think, 26 at the time, I believe. Royce Hart was the coach at this point in time. You got to share a locker room with the great Doug Hawkins, of course, a Bulldogs legend. While it was a tough season for the club, finishing near the bottom, well, I think you did finish bottom that year. Great debut season for yourself, 82 goals, second in the Coleman medal. Back then, what was the difference in standard waffle compared to VFL? Was it a significant jump?
1: Well, one of the differences was the grounds got very heavy over in Melbourne. It seemed to be a lot wetter, whereby we played in better conditions in Perth. But, look, basically, in a nutshell, really, the footy was very similar. Maybe the game was a little bit quicker in Melbourne than it was in Perth. The Perth players were terribly skilled, well-skilled, the footballers playing in the waffle competition. I took a while to sort of get my mojo. I had two or three poor games to start with, and I thought to myself, i better do something pretty quickly and get my act together, and funnily enough, it was that over at Victoria Park, Collingwood's home ground, where I kicked six that day, and it sort of turned the season a bit for me. Ended up, as you said, playing, kicking 82 goals. Came second to Malcolm Blight, so the great Malcolm Blight, so didn't have to worry too much about that, but it, it, it was sort of tough going in my first few games, and I can always remember I got a phone call from John Cooper, who's the president of Swan District, from one of our legends over there. And he said they'd always have me have me back in Swan Districts if I wanted to come back. I said, no, 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 I'm not coming back. So I had a good job and everything. I, I knew things would settle down in due course, which they did. We started getting a bit of success on the field, even though I think we only won four or five games in that first season I was there. But, yeah, we got our act together and, you know, we moved forward.
0: And this is one thing I've been keen to talk to you about. So, Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the plan was originally for you to team up with Kelvin Templeton, who was the captain in 1982, won a Brownlow medal, two Best and Ferris, two Coleman's. You were supposed to form a combination that would have been incredible. It didn't seem to work in the end, and 1982 was the one and only season you were together on the Bulldogs list. What happened there?
1: Yeah, well, in a nutshell, the press built that scenario up in the eyes of the public, so they said the Beasley-Templeton duo would be lethal for the Bulldogs. But unfortunately, Kelvin had injuries. He built his upper body up very strongly. And and he, he's a good bloke, Kelvin. But he had the chicken legs a bit. <laughs> he, because he had the chicken legs, he, he put too much pressure on, on his legs. And because he built himself up so heavily. And it really wasn't the right thing to do. So, And he played a, a sprinkling of games in 1982. And then he left the club and he went to Melbourne Footy Club. Played a year or two over at Melbourne so it was a bit sad that we lost him but unfortunately I think as a function of having built himself up so much he lost a lot of actual speed and endurance and he struggled in the, in the first when i in my first year he, he did struggle and he didn't play too many games and and he finished up at Melbourne but he's a great bloke Kelvin he um he went up and he became general manager of the Sydney Swans and he's had a pretty successful business career but he's one of our great men uh, Kelvin Templeton.
0: So just totally neglected leg day then?
1: Well, the problem was that, you know, when players over here, a lot of them spent a lot of time in the gym and I don't necessarily think it was the be all and end all. I mean, I certainly think you had to build yourself up to a, to an extent and you could hold your ground, which I was able to do with a lot of a lot of the full backs in the competition. But it's an interesting scenario. There seemed to be more of an emphasis on gym work over here, but I was never overly keen on the gym. But anyway, look, I mean, it was the way it was. A lot of players did build bulk themselves up and sometimes they had problems with their legs and you know, because they were too top-heavy. So I think sort of Kelvin fell into that bracket a little bit.
0: Was your time at the Bulldogs made a bit easier by having a few of the other WA boys there? So you mentioned before you also had Andrew purser there, Jim Sewell, Tony Bahasha, yep. Brad Hardy. I'm sure there would have been a couple more over your decade there. I'm assuming you'd known these guys
2: for a while.
1: Yeah, yeah, Murray Rance. I played with him at Swan Districts. Rance, he was there and also played with Ian Williams. Ian Williams is a Swan Districts player and he came over. Jimmy Sue we had a good sprinkling of Eastern Randall players. Sort of coincided with Mick McMalthouse entrance into the Bulldogs. So he wanted to change a lot of the playing structures there. So he was pretty rude. He kept the best of the blokes that were there for the previous two or three years. And then he went after interstate players and players from other VFL clubs. And he really turned the place on its head to try and get a result. We had a lot of players who'd been playing at other clubs in Victoria who came over and joined us, which is good.
0: Is it true at some point in time you were offered the captaincy?
1: He did actually, because his first year at the club was 1984. So when I first went there and and went into pre-season in the end of 1981, Royce Hart was the coach at that stage. And Royce only lasted the first three or four games in 1982, maybe five games. And they appointed Bluey Hampshire, who was a player who played at Geelong, the big bulky ruckman, and, and he was a ruckman at the Bulldogs. And he took over coaching the team after Royce departed about sort of after five or six games in 1982. And Bluey was there in 1983, but the club sort of realised he was a very, very good club person, but they didn't really think he had the capacity to take the club forward in terms of being a senior coach, hence the appointment of Mick Malthouse. And I spoke to, before Mick Malthus came into the fold, because he came into the fold after Christmas, but I spoke to Bluey about the possibility of being captain of the club. But it would have been a little bit premature, really, because I'd only played two years there. Still going through that phase of getting to know all the guys really well. And I said, no, I think Jimmy Edmond's was probably the best pick in terms of a potential captain. He was a touch younger than me. So they went for Jimmy Edmond, which was actually a good decision, because he's a pretty capable captain. Good bloke to play with And he had plenty to offer
0: That would have been Pretty big honour though To be offered the captaincy only After only a couple of years At the club
1: It would have been If it would become public But look I talked Bluey out of it And as, as it was It was actually a good decision Not for me to be made captain Because look Mick came into the fold And he wanted to Put his own people In place. That he thought They'd be I spoke to him about it And look It ended up working out Pretty well for us Jimmy Edmund became A very good leader For the club So that was Something to behold Yeah
0: yeah, fair call. Cool. We've spoken about Roy's heart and then Louis Hampshire comes in. But 1984 was the year where Mick Malthouse became the coach. Now, as we know him today, one of the greatest coaches, he took West Coast and Collingwood to eight grand finals and won three of them. He had the reputation of being a great player, but in a coaching aspect, he was still a rookie, basically. What were your first thoughts on Mick and what was your relationship like with him during his time at the Bulldogs?
1: Okay, so Mick Malthouse, Obviously, came to Richmond from St Kilda, so he played under Alan Jeans and he played under I think Tony Jewell at Richmond, and he had played under some very good coaches. So he he was the sort of prime candidate to be a very very good senior coach, which he was. So when he came into the fold of the Bulldogs, sort of I got on very well with him. We had a strong relationship, and I thought he was terrific for our club. Really got things back on the straight and narrow he was the ideal replacement for Ian Hampshire. So, and that came through very quickly. You could see that the club was on an upward, upward trend. And I think the recruitment of Mick was blessing for the club. We just unfortunately couldn't quite get over the hump in 1985, but no, he was, he was a very, very good coach for that. No question about that.
0: One chapter of the Footscray slash Western Bulldogs history that's fondly remembered and, and still is brought up to this day is the 1985 season. For yourself, the Coleman medal with 105 goals. You're still the last Bulldog to win a Coleman medal. Brad Hardy wins the Brownlow medal, as you mentioned earlier, and the Bulldogs finally break through and make the finals. What made everything click in 1985?
1: I, I think the inclusion of a number of the Western Australian players coming over and that together with some of the players who've been playing BFL with other clubs. So, we were a pretty formidable team in '85, and we grew confidence very quickly. Once you win a few games early, and we dominated early in the season. I think we won maybe five or six out of the first seven or eight games. And as you know, it's football's about confidence and confidence grew very, very quickly. And we knew that we would be competitive to the top teams. And the top teams were sort of Hawthorne and Essendon. They played off to the flag in 1984. They were the, the measuring sticks and we did very well against Essendon. We were competitive with Hawthorne and we had very, very strong groups. So, look, it was an exciting stage of uh, Footscray's development in the 1980s. It was very, very good to be part of.
0: And the 1985 final series is pretty interesting. So, they are the only three finals that you played in your career and you played well on those big occasions. So, you kicked two goals, seven goals, and three goals across the three finals. The first finals you got smashed by Hawthorne you then get a second chance against North Melbourne, you win, that's the game where you kicked your 100 goal, and then the preliminary final against Hawthorne at Waverley. What are your memories of finals football and how did those occasions compare to home and away season games?
1: So, look, the finals were pretty full on. We played first two finals at the MCG and the third final we played out at Waverley. There was the final five in those days. We didn't have the additional teams in the national competition, so there was the final five. So we came up against pretty Ruth or in that first week of finals and they held us up pretty strongly and we had to go back to the drawing board after that game because we'd been beaten in the last home in a game by St Kilda down at Moorabbin and it's not unusual for good teams to go to Moorabbin and get beaten by St Kilda. So that happened to us and we got on the wrong leg and as we went into the first week of the finals we didn't have our mojo about us. So Hawthorne toweled us up. They did very, very well. We came back strongly as you say, in the second week against North Melbourne. I think we won that game by six or seven goals and uh, we were all over North Melbourne and then we journeyed out to Waverley the following week to play Hawthorne again. That was for the right to get through to the grand final and we were playing very well that day. Brad Hardy was playing extremely well. He was toweling up Lee Matthews and, and a num- number of our players were having very, very good days and I remember going into the last quarter, we got to 10 points up. I think i kicked the goal, that 10-minute mark of the last quarter. And Alan Jeans, who's coaching Hawthorne, Lee Matthews came back on the ground. And Lee Matthews, whose opponent had been Brad Hardy, and, and Brad Hardy was a free spirit in terms of the way he went about his footy. He was, he, he was everywhere. But unfortunately, Matthews got away from him in that four or five-minute period. And he kicked about three to four goals in three minutes. It was incredible absolutely incredible so he won the game from him, the, didn't he? Yeah. he won the game and of course in the following week they got belted Hawthorne unmercifully by, by Essendon and he retired after that game but unfortunately we got him on a day he was absolutely brilliant you could just see he was an architect Matthews he was everywhere for about five minutes and he kicked those goals and that turned the game and going ten points up to about three, two goals down in a matter of minutes it was quite incredible
0: throughout your career that's the closest you ever got to to making it into a grand final so Hawthorne were obviously a super team they had Lee Matthews as you said and Ayres Dippia Domenico Knights Dunstall Burden Langford are you the sort of person that just moves on and focuses on the present or do you ever sit back and lament what could have been because I believe you've been on record saying that had the Bulldogs gotten into the grand final you would be pretty confident of being able to beat Essendon
4: out of the centre circle, who's going to get it? Down to leverage. there's the same. A great fight back by footstray to get to within 10 points, but Hawthorne will be through to the 1985 Grand Final against Eston. The third year in succession of these two clubs will have fought out the VFL Cup. Hawthorne 16 13 109. as Alan Daniels lifts off. Footstray 15-9-99.
1: Well, funnily enough, we did very well against in that year. We were one team that ran them very close and Essendon, I think they only lost two or three games in the course of the 1985 season. But they were one club we weren't concerned with. I knew we would play well against Essendon and we were able to get over Hawthorne, but look, it, it wasn't to be, and no point crying over spilt milk. But at the end of the day, Essendon smashed Hawthorne in, in that grand final, and I remember it well. I think Paul Salmon dominated, and they had winners all over the grand, including great Leon Baker, who I played with the Swan Districts. Yeah, so it, look, it wasn't to be, but I never really digressed and sort of thought about it to, to the extent that what what could have been, maybe we're, there's a couple of areas of our game in in that final series we could have addressed. But look, you just move on. Look, we had reasonable years after that, but it was a maybe it was one that got away from us. But unfortunately, it wasn't to be.
0: You had obviously a great career. You kicked over 500 goals. You had that 100 goal year, which we'll get into. But unfortunately, it only produced three finals. Are you disappointed that you didn't get to experience a bit more team success throughout your career?
1: Look, I would have liked to have participated in finals more with the Bulldogs because, mind you, when when I went to the Bulldogs, the history really wasn't great, sparingly in the finals in Victoria, and they they'd really struggled, and you had to go back into the sixties when I think when they participated in finals, but it was not a great history won premiership in 1954 and with EJ Whitman and Charlie Sutton and Jack Collins and all those guys the desire of all players is to aim high and and play finals all players want to play finals and participate at the end of the year so unfortunately in those days as I said there was only five teams out of 12 who were able to get there we were only able to do it once so from that perspective maybe a little bit disappointing but I had great years of the Bulldogs in terms of I met, the relationships I formed, I love the club, a fantastic club, and I wouldn't have had it any different.
0: And the Bulldogs have always struck me as a club who do the best they can with what they've got, limited resources, they're obviously not as big and bad as, you know, your Collingwoods it's and your Collingwoods, everyone who is there just loves the club and wants to see the club be successful, it, it sounds like there's a great culture that exists within the fabric of the club.
1: Look, I think that's right, that's fair comment particularly the last two years under Luke Beveridge. They won the flag in 2016 and they played off in 2021 against Melbourne. Yeah, that was the game in Perth. So they've sort of turned things around pretty strongly. It's a ferociously competitive competition in the AFL now. You know, they were the 18 teams. Everyone wants to get ahead quickly and supporters demand success. But they've done a very good job of it, the Bulldogs. They've got an incredible facility out there at the Western Oval where I used to play. They've got the, the building program going on. It's just, just amazing what's been happening. I'm keen on the past players. I, I go to past players' functions. I love doing that, catching up with the old guys. So that's something to look forward to when we have those occasions. Yeah, so look, it's a great club to be involved with the Western Bulldogs and I was very, very fortunate that they came after me.
0: Halftime break here on Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast, and I'd just like to take a moment to thank everyone who has tuned into the show. The support is very much appreciated, and I hope this episode is finding you well. If you're enjoying the show, it would be a massive help if you could consider subscribing and leaving a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps feed the podcast algorithm and boost the show's visibility which will therefore allow for other Australian sports tragics to see and listen to the show. Five stars, of course, would be fantastic, but I'll leave that up to you. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it, because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. You are, I believe there's only 28 players in the history of the game, and you're one of them who have kicked 100 goals in a season. It's an extraordinary achievement You kicked your 100th goal during the semi final against North Melbourne. You take a great contestant mark going back with the fly. Again, that incredibly consistent set shot technique, and you slot it through. Can you remember what you were thinking and feeling when you went back to have that shot?
4: Putting it through for his fifth goal of the afternoon and his hundredth for season 1985. I believe his back manager will be
2: very happy indeed, and so will Sonic.
1: I had really a set routine, as you say. I knew what I had to do. There's no kicking around corners like they do these days. Out in the MCG, right in front of goal, you just go straight at the goal. There is no rhyme or reason in terms of doing anything different to what you've been doing all season or the years that you've been there. And so I just, you know, went back and. Did my normal thing and fortunately it went nice and straight, which is good. And the job done. So to that end, I think a lot of players overthink things these days to a certain extent. With the internet and everything like that, the whole landscape's changed dramatically. But it was pretty basic stuff when the routine I had and everything like that, but it worked. And I think a lot of things worked pretty well in the 80s. I think the football was great in the 1980s. And, look, footy is still great, but, you know, I was lucky. I played in a really good era. But nowadays, of course, the kids are coming through, the supporters, they're all younger. They didn't see any of any of the action that we were involved with in the 1980s, because so, they weren't born. But football's evolved beautifully, and it's still a great game. And everyone loves it, which is good. It's fortunate, I think, the 1980s and the 1990s were 20 great years for football. I think they've had great years post that, too. I mean, great years in they? in the last 10-15 years and the AFL has become a monster organisation and they do a very good job of administering the game. But back then when I played, golly, it was some of the games, the big teams used to command the attention because of the money and, and, and the attraction of supporters and everything like that. But now the game's become an absolute monster. It's such a huge business, the AFL, in this day and age.
0: As one of only 28 who have kicked the century, kicked 100 goals in a season... The way the game is played now, and as you mentioned, compared to, you know, the 80s and 90s, do you think we will ever see a forward kick 100 goals in a season ever again?
1: So I think it's going to be difficult. The major reason is the game is so fast these days, and they whiz players on and off the ground, and someone playing at full forward, the strict definition of a full forward is not really a full forward as we understood it back in the 80s or the 70s. All of a sudden, they're far more athletic than players. They run, run, run. They're more finely tuned than what we were, big bulky players that we had in the 80s. You don't really get them these days. You don't see too many of them, but they're beautiful athletes. And they run from the 4-4 position down to the wing and they run back. So in my era, really, most you ventured away from the square is down about centre-half forward and then kick a mark, kick a goal, run back. That's about it. So it's very, very different game these days. So I think it will be difficult in the long run for someone to kick 100 goals. Look, someone may come through the ranks, I'm not sure, because players are so finely tuned. A lot of players get soft tissue issues. They weren't that big of an issue when I was playing in the 80s. They're very finely tuned athletes, so it'll be an interesting one, but my gut feel is you won't see another player kick 100 goals. I'd love to see someone do it.
0: The most we've seen over the last, well, since Buddy Franklin is, I think a few players have hit 80, but Yeah, no one's really got close. No, no, it's an interesting facet
1: of the game, yeah, kicking goals.
0: So where does that achievement sit amongst all of what you achieved in your career being an AFL Centurion?
1: Look, it's great to be able to kick 100 goals and it's great to be recognised for it. And, And my peer group, the Bulldogs, when we catch up, it's always great to see them and individual successes great best and fairest or leading goal and all that sort of thing but i think most footballers aspire to being part of a group that can win a premiership that would have been my preference but unfortunately it wasn't to be so it's just one of those things being in the right place at the right time to a certain extent i'd spoke to carlton quite a bit about going to carlton and of course they went on and and they were a great success another team i did speak to was hawthorne and they they won premierships but unfortunately the bulldogs didn't but I don't regret any, any decisions
0: I made in footy. So after the highs of 1985, naturally you're expected to take the next step the following year. But unfortunately, Footscray missed the finals in 1986. In fact, the club didn't even play finals again all the way until 1992. Supposedly a few issues on and off the field, it's fair to say. There was the infamous football trip, which I'm not super clear of what happened. Something involving players being kicked off a plane in Hawaii. I do recall hearing once or twice, there were rumours about a supposed alliance between Fitzroy and Footscray. Was there any truth to that?
1: Yeah, there was some truth to that. And in 1989, the club were um, really struggling. I I retired in about July, July, August in 1989. We'd been down and out for most of the season. We We really weren't getting the results we were looking for. And the Victorian Football League administration at that time, in their wisdom, decided to try and convince Footscray to merge with Fitzroy.
0: Oh, so it was but a merger.
1: Effect- okay. Yeah, it was a merger, but it was effectively a takeover of the Western Bulldogs of Footscray by Fitzroy. That's what they wanted to happen. And they, the Bulldogs were broke. Unfortunately, the Bulldogs didn't have much money at all, and Fitzroy weren't traveling that well. But the reality of what happened was there was a huge fight back by the fans of the Western Bulldogs. So, there was a huge fight back by the fans, and they raised a lot of money to extinguish the club's debts and give the club an opportunity to get their head above water and continue on. So, that's actually what happened. The Fitzroy Lions ended up going to Brisbane, becoming the Brisbane Bears on their journey, and then they became the Brisbane Bears, and they went on to become the Brisbane Lions, and then they won those premierships. So, look, they've got a great history, Fitzroy, but that merger was never really meant to be. It shouldn't have been looked at by the VFL, but the VFL wanted to try and get some action in terms of competition, what was evolving at that stage into a national competition. You had the Eagles coming in, the teams in Adelaide, and of course you had the Brisbane Bears, which is the old Fitzroy, becoming the Brisbane Lions. So a lot of things were happening in two those, football in those particular respective eras.
0: Yeah, because there was a bit of talk about, like there was even, I can't remember when it was, or if you recall, but there were rumours about Hawthorne and Melbourne merging at one stage as well. I don't know if that was yep. actually true.
1: Yeah, I think that happened in the 1990s. That was certainly a goer. That looked as though that would be a chance. But again, the power of the supporters put that to rest. Hawthorne had some very strong individuals involved in not wanting to pursue that path. I think Melbourne had the same. So that was good that they didn't because otherwise one of those two teams would have disappeared and it would have been very difficult. Supporters of either club wanting to be part of a merged supporters group.
0: So really, after all the talk, there's only ever been one that's actually gone through and that was Fitzroy and the Brisbane Bears.
1: Yeah, the Fitzroy becoming the Brisbane Bears then becoming the Brisbane Lions and that resulted in three premierships. So it's not a bad result.
0: <laughs> yeah, not bad at all. When you look yeah. back at your... Like at the time, but also now, considering how good oh. you were in 1985 and, you know, your personal success as well as the team's success, the fact that you never played a final ever again after that. If someone told you that at the end of the 1985 season, you would have been very disappointed with that.
1: Yeah, look, I thought we were going to be able to kick on, but we had a list which was ageing a little bit. That was a negative. And I don't think we had enough young guys to come into the club at that time. We should have maybe turned the list over a little bit more and got some younger guys in. Because when Mick Malthouse came into the club, he did recruit mature-age players out of the likes of Richmond and Essendon and all that sort of thing. So... The list was aging, and there'd been a bit of a blow-up. Brad Hardy had a blow-up with Mick and the club, and he, he took off to become part of the Brisbane Lions, the Brisbane Bears situation up at Ferrara.
0: That surely would have so, affected things.
1: Yeah, and so, look, well, it was disappointing to a certain extent. I mean, the lack of success. The club went backwards a bit from 1985. To, well, that's one of those things. You, you have to get, get on with the job and endure it. It was disappointing, but we potentially could have done better, but we weren't able to, so... It's one of those things that happens in footy. It's the ups and downs in footy, as they say.
0: And your career, unfortunately, ended prematurely. So you had issues with your knee and your back. Was this the sole reason for your retirement?
1: Yes. Look, I mean, it was 1989, so I was 33. I'd had a fair crack at it through Swan District, playing sort of about 90 games at Swan Districts and 154 at the Bulldogs. So I'd, ha- I'd had a good go at footy, and I also... Played a number. I played three seasons of amateur football in the Western Australian Amateur League over in Perth, with the University Footy Club when I was studying at university. So, you know, I had a fair crack of footy over there, quite a number of years. So, it gradually wears you down, footy, and you can't keep doing it. Your mind wants to, but you can't. The reality set in, and well, I had a couple of issues with my, with knees, but it was more so my back. You know, I took a bit of a hammering over the years with hits in the back and everything so I knew it was time so it wasn't a difficult decision to make and when you make it you move on and but you still treasured the memories in terms of the people you met when you, when I came to Melbourne and, and the relationships I forged with their lifelong memories.
0: And when it was all said and done you finished up with 575 goals and you held and still hold two records you are the all-time leading goal scorer for Footscray slash Western Bulldogs and you were the league's highest goal scorer throughout the 1980s. You kicked more goals than anyone else. Now, bear in mind, you had Gary Ablett Sr., you had Jason Dunstall, Tony Lockett. That is an incredible achievement because you've got to remember those names I just mentioned. Gary Ablett Sr. debuted just one year after you. Tony Lockett won a Brownlow medal in the 80s. And Jason Dunstall kicked his first bag of 100 in the 80s. So it's not like you didn't have other players around you. That That is an incredible achievement. How do you feel about that, especially after it's been such a long time to reflect on that stat?
1: Well, the, the interesting thing was I think Jason started with Hawthorne about 1984, 85, and Tony Lockett about the same. I was lucky from the point of view, being the highest goal kicker in the 1980s in the VFL, the fact of the matter is my, my career started in the early 80s and ended in 1989. So from that point of view, I was fortunate. But look, it's one of those things that someone mentioned to me the stat a few years after I'd retired. I found it quite interesting because, you know, my career just flanked the the front end and the rear end of the 1980s and it's something. Look, it was a great thing to be able to achieve. It's pleasing, kicking 100 goals and the like. They come up with a lot of interesting stats these days, but that's one of the more interesting ones kicking the goals in the 1980s and being the Bulldogs' top goal kicker. I was very friendly with Jack Collins, who played the 54 grand final side, and he was the leading goal kicker in the, for the club until I took over. But anyway, it's one of those things. That's a, it's a nice thing that people talk about.
0: So how would you feel if you saw someone take over your record? Would there be a, a sense of, you know, that's mine, or would you be happy to see someone take over?
1: Uh, look, I think that with different records being set every year it'd be great if someone could take the mantle but as we spoke about someone kicking 100 goals it's a, it's a tall order nowadays and you'd need to have someone like an Aaron Norton or Hugo Hagen who could kick 60 or 70 goals for the rest of their careers and they, they might get up there but look it's not easy I think it's, it's you know being 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 a sort of a goal kicker being, being a consistent goal kicker and for a club would be it's a tough ask these days, you know, given the speed the game's played at and everything like that. So you don't see the big bags of goals, which you used to see in the 1980s. So
0: Yeah, very true.
1: Interesting facet of the game. So anyway, look, it's one of those things that I'm I was certainly very pleased to be able to set those records.
0: Before we get into the final stretch of this episode, we need to take one more break here on A5Q. Now, this podcast is partnered with Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style. Unfortunately, most chemist products do not really achieve this efficiently. If you want high-quality results, you need high-quality products. Pete and Pedro, established in 2013, offers premium hair and beard grooming products and tools that will actually get in there moisturize, rehydrate and clean your scalp, hair and beard thoroughly without burning a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, combs, brushes and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now I would never promote or partner with a brand I did not use or trust. Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for years now and can confidently say there are no better hair and beard products on the market. Gentlemen, if you are looking to take your grooming game to that next level without breaking the bank, do yourself a favour and check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code DAMATO10, spelled D A M A T O10, you'll score yourself an extra 10% off on what is already a great deal. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. But for right now, let's get back to the show. <sighs> Throughout the years, we've seen some great Footscray and Western Bulldog teams. You have the Terry Wallace team in, in the late 90s. You had the Rodney Eade of the late 2000s. Of course, Luke Beveridge has done an incredible job making two grand finals. And of course, finally winning that, that second flag in 2016. Why do you think, when you look at the, the Footscray Football Club as a whole from, from day one, why there hasn't been a whole lot of overall team success? They're obviously hard to win premierships, but... They've been in the competition since 1925 and they've only won the two premierships. Why do you think that is?
1: My take on it is that the more successful clubs are the ones that have access to the money, the big money clubs. The Bulldogs were sort of very low down in the food chain in terms of money. They weren't a big financial club. So I think when you attracted recruits to your club, financial incentives were paramount in terms of getting a really good playing list. If you look at the history of some of the other clubs, through that period, they were able to attract very, very good players from interstate, players from their zoning area, and they were able to get the right type of personnel into the club. Whereas the Bulldogs, I think, struggled a little bit in that area for various reasons. So, it's an interesting one, but when you look at the history of the clubs in the 70s and 80s, the successful clubs are sort of, you know, the Richmond, Collingwoods, um, Essendon and Hawthorne in the 80s. So, you you had a group of Clubs that were down the ladder quite a bit, like South Melbourne was one before they came to Sydney Swans. You had Victoria Lions, you had the Footscray Bulldogs, you had even Melbourne Footy Club, who had the huge success of the in the uh, the early '60s and the, and the and the '50s, being you know really really struggling to make a go of it. It was a bit lopsided the competition to a certain extent for various reasons. So, and it was a very very strong competition. So, anyway, look, I mean. It was always nice to be part of the competition and would have been nice to have played in more final series but it wasn't to be for the Western Bulldogs.
0: So what did it mean to you to see the club win the 2016 premiership? Do you remember that day Like, were you're at the game and what did that moment mean for not only you but the whole Footscray slash Western Bulldogs football
4: club? What a day. we we'll kick virtually on the siren. He misses. But they don't miss out. Their day, their year, their
3: joy.
1: Well, I just cements in the minds of the supporters the fact that the loyalty they'd showed to the club over the years the fact that so many different players have played for the clubs and put their bodies on the line and everything like that. And clubs, they work towards premierships. No question and the That's the, the, the highest achieving thing for a club, both with the players and the personnel they've got on the field and and also all the supporters that get behind the club and, and will them to win. And when we sort of look at our team in that 2016 where Tom Boyd came on the scene from GWS and he was a great player for us and we had a mix of players coming from other clubs, and it was just seemed to be a great recipe. And Luke Beveridge was the one that cooked the cake, and it was just a beautiful result for us all. So it's a memory that I'll always treasure being there with my family and my kids, growing up kids and everything. It was just unbelievable. It was great. It was a great day for us. It was a great day for Footscray supporters in general. Yeah,
0: that's fantastic insight. Two more things I, I do want to quickly talk to you about. One is the Graham Allen incident. I couldn't let you go before asking you this one. So it's late in the game against Collingwood, probably 30 seconds to go. Collingwood defender Graham Allen, instead of going long down the line, he kicks across the face to Greg Phillips and you come in, steal the mark and you kick the winning goal. How did you see that? Because, you know, with all due respect, obviously to Graham Allen, completely wrong decision.
3: directly in front only 20 meters out even if he kicks astray it'll square the scores up but I'm sure from this position beasley now from directly in front hops-
1: never thought he'd do it funny thing was that jimmy edmund tackled him deep in that forward pocket and when he tackled him he fell into his back and graham allen is the recipient recipient of a free kick and of course he went back and the wind was very fluky that day and he elected to kick it across the goal rather than as you say sticking to the boundary line which was the sensible thing to do that i just detected very quickly that he may possibly because he was looking across my way and greg phillips is backing off me but, you know, he elected to kick it across. And, of course, the wind was fluky. So I, I, I ran back and managed to sort of grab the ball. I counted in Phillips's knee because he had dicey knees, Greg Phillips. And yeah, the ultimate, yeah. the end of it was a goal. And, of course, it was the end of the game. And, and they were done, Collingwood. So very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no question I was lucky.
0: Another one is round 7, 1988. I'm sure you're familiar with that one. So you're playing the Brisbane Bears. You've kicked seven goals straight. You take a mark right on the boundary line and you have the opportunity to win the game with a kick after the siren. Now, something that happened on this occasion would never, ever happen these days. Fans flock the stadium. They're all in your way. And you have to take a shot to win the game with fans pretty much a metre away from you. Unfortunately, you missed the shot, which you can definitely be forgiven for. Watching the replay now, it's funny to watch. But was it funny at the time?
4: The tightest angle you can imagine. Oh dear, what a finish. The ground is covered in people. Simon Beasley has to kick this to win the game for Footscray. No doubt the crowd getting in his way, but it's going to make it tough. It's going to make it tough for the how, goal umpire. How can he make a decision? Well, he's got it. Here's the kick. Four premiership points are right out, and I think he's missed it.
1: Look, it was one of those things that I was sort of desperate to mark the ball when it came into our forward line quickly. And unfortunately, I marked it very close to the point post. So it made the angle that I was on very, very acute. And of course, it was actually getting quite dark up there, you know, up at Carrara. I had to go back and try and get my kick going quickly. But the umpire's pulling me around. There's people everywhere. A bloke with the bloody esky ran across the mark. It was was pandemonium, (laughs) really, it was. And so, look, it went over the goalpost. Was, he was always going to mark at a point. So, look, it was one of those things. It was quite amusing. It wasn't so amusing at the time because we had the shits up about it. But when you look back at it from years and years go on, you laugh at it. But it, it's interesting vision when you Google it and have a look at it. And I showed my grandson. He, he couldn't believe it. He said, oh... He said, bees, he caused me bees. He said, how how the hell did that happen? I had to explain to him, he's only about five or six, so okay. anyway, he's a great little boy, yeah. Anyway, it was a very, very funny part of Footscray's history.
0: So at the time, were you annoyed?
1: To tell you the truth, I was virtually side-on to the goals. It was gonna be a very, very tricky kick. Yeah, and we didn't kick around the corners like they do these days, so it was, it, it was a tricky one, and unfortunately I just missed it. It'll go down in the annals of history as a myth, so <laughs> so be it anyway.
0: I always finish these chats with three final questions. Who is the best player you ever played with and why? The best player you ever played against and why? And lastly, best coach you ever played under and why?
1: The best player I played with would be Doug Hawkins, the Bulldogs. He was just a beautiful player in the game of the skills of the Australian rules football. And he was a brilliant player. Yeah, and the best player in terms of full backs. Look, it's a bit of a difficult one because I had a very even spread of full backs that I played over in terms of my career over here. But I think one of the best full backs in terms of tightness and wanting to hit the hell out of me was Rod Carter, who played at the Sydney Swans and played at South Melbourne in the old days. He came to Fitzroy, actually. I think Rod Carter played his initial football at Fitzroy and then he went to the Sydney Swans, had a great career. He was an extremely tough full back. And I played on lots of good full backs like Gary Malarkey from... He was a Western Australian who played with Geelong. Chris Langford, I played against him from Hawthorne. Look, I, I played on many, many good fullbacks. And on the coaching scenario, look, John Todd was a superb coach for Swan Districts. I played on uh, under at Toddy in Perth and also Mick Malthouse in Melbourne. Look, I'd say John Todd and Mick Malthouse, two of the great exponents of coaching in Australian rules, both had their differences and everything like that, but they were both outstanding coaches and motivators. and I certainly enjoyed playing football under them and I was very privileged to be able to do so.
0: Simon Beasley, it's been fantastic to have a chat with you tonight. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for coming on the show tonight.
1: Thanks, Daniel. Nice talking to you and your uh, listeners.
0: And that is a wrap for another episode. I trust you enjoyed this conversation and I thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a review. And I'll catch you all on the next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast.